Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. So let's have a conversation about the book of Daniel. I associate Daniel with a lion's den. That's a dangerous place to be. So we'll find out about that later on, I'm sure, Mike. But uh, Daniel, who, who was Daniel? You know, why did he write this book? Daniel was one of a number of sort of leading officials or even members of the royal household who were deported from Judah by Babylon in 605 BC. Just to give a quick bit of background that we have referred to previously, the mighty empire of Assyria eventually fell to Babylon. It sort of collapsed because it overstretched itself and Babylon grew up within it as a new power base, collapsed in 612 BC. Babylon is now the mighty empire stretching across the Middle East. Of course, the other mighty empire is Egypt, but Babylon deals with Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. Now it alone dominates affairs in that part of the world and starts to put pressure on Judah, all that remains of God's people, and tightens the screws to keep them in their place. And so in 605 BC, there was a first deportation of some of its leading citizens taken against their will from Jerusalem and resettled in Babylon. And Daniel was one of the leading citizens, members of the royal family who were taken at that time. It was Babylon's way of saying, now you just behave yourself or worse will come. They'll do a similar thing in 597 with a second deportation. We saw that was the one when Ezekiel was taken into exile. And finally, 586 BC will be the destruction of Jerusalem when everyone will be taken. So Daniel is there among the first, among the upper echelons of society, uh, a fine young man taken with other fine young men, taken against his will and resettled in Babylon. So he, he lost his privileges then in being taken into exile. Uh, absolutely. He's lost his privileges. He's lost his position. He is now nothing. He is an exile. He's a refugee almost. <laughs> Think of how people arrive in our country sometimes as refugees with nothing and you are now wholly dependent upon your sort of host nation, except here the host nation is anything but friendly. But what the king of Babylon did was to take some of these young men that had been exiled from Judah and he sees sort of potential in them. Daniel's one of them. And so he trains them. He, he, he picks out the best. For his benefit. Oh, absolutely. Everything was for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit. You know, he was the only person who mattered in those days. And so he picks out some of these young men. Chapter one says young men with without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. So he takes the the sort of the cream of those that he has deported and he starts to have them trained so they can be used in his service. 
And, of course, they're going to be trained in, in all kinds of things. It says they're going to be trained in the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, some of that literature would be quite ungodly. There were many Babylonian creation accounts, for example, which had a very different story of how the world came into being from the one that Daniel would have been brought up in. So here is this young man who goes through this training process to be used in the Babylonian Empire. And that training process will involve him having to learn things that he wouldn't choose to by choice. And yet it's a great story of how he gives himself to that, rises to the top, is used significantly through a number of kings and even regimes, and yet maintains his faith in Yahweh, the living God, through it all. And so its relevance for us today is very much, you know, can I maintain my faith in public office? There's huge pressure in the West now. You know, you can have your faith, thank you, but you keep it private, keep it out of your work. Daniel is a great model for how to bring those two together in incredibly wise ways. It sounds like there's a beautiful irony with the fact that this King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make him look good, but in the end, by encouraging Daniel, he made God look good. Yeah, amazing, isn't it, how God uses things. Yeah, he was a guy who really only cared for himself, and yet God brings something incredible out of this, and Daniel will end up being used for this king because he's given himself to his service, but he will also be used to get some incredible revelations that will help God's people, not just at this period of exile that they were going to have to live through, but in the years that would follow and still has relevance for us today. So how does the book associated with Daniel then capture that? What's the, the big picture of Daniel, if you like? Well, let's do a quick overview as we have with some of the other prophets Actually, the book falls into two convenient halves, really. Uh, chapters 1 to 6 are all messages given through Daniel to others, to the kings in particular. And chapters 7 to 12, part 2, are messages for Daniel. It's like he's been faithful in passing on and interpreting messages for others. Now in the second half of the book, God gives messages to him for himself and for his own people. So two fairly clear parts to the book there. So this first half, if you like, then, messages for others. And what are those messages and how do those messages come about? Well, having proved his faithfulness in chapter one, chapter one's a great study, by the way, in how to sort of let your faith be seen in the workplace, but how to do it in a wise way. So really commend that to people. But he gets his opportunity in chapter two, where King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, remember, this is the King Nebuchadnezzar who rules the mighty empire of Babylon, who has conquered empires before him, who has taken these people into deportation and will soon destroy Jerusalem. So that's the sort of character that we are dealing with. And in chapter two, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream one night and he, he has this dream and he can remember it, but he doesn't know what it means. Now, we have to remember that in the ancient world, 
dreams were seen as very different to how we would see them today. I mean, dreams are often a mixture of things we've been doing that day or things that we're worried about or things we'd like to do. In the ancient world, dreams were seen as a way of the gods speaking to you. And the more important a person you were, then the more important the dream was. So when the king got a dream that he couldn't understand, uh, this was really quite crucial. So he calls for all his wise men. He tells them that I've had a dream and it's been troubling me and I want to know what it means. So all the wise men say, oh, your wonderfulness, tell us what the dream is and we'll happily interpret it to you. And the king says, no, hang on. If you're so wise, you wise men, tell me the dream and what it means. And they all say, oh, come on, your majesty, you know, <laughs> nobody can do that, can we? And so the king is so angry with them that they cannot tell him the dream that he, he makes an order that all the wise men of Babylon are to be put to death. Now, from chapter one, we know that Daniel and his friends have been elevated to that position. So Daniel's life is now on the line. This is not theoretical. His life is on the line here. But when he hears about what has happened, he, he goes to the man responsible for them, their overseer. And the text says he spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Oh, that's a good little reminder there, isn't it, for us how to go about it. And he goes to this guy called Ariok and he says, you know, well, why is the king issued this decree for us all to be put to death? And Ariok explains. And during that night, the meaning of this dream is revealed to Daniel in a vision. So he goes to Ariok, the overseer, and says, look, my God has given me this dream. And so he's quickly taken to the king. And the king says, are you able to interpret this dream? And Daniel's really wise. He says, no, no, I can't, your majesty. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he goes on to tell the king what the dream was that he had and what its meaning was. And what he'd seen in the dream was a statue made up of sort of four parts. It had a head of gold and its sort of chest and arms were made of silver and its belly and thighs were made of bronze and its legs were of iron. And it was a picture of four kingdoms that were to come, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. But in this picture, he, he's really wise and he says to King Nebuchadnezzar, now, you, your majesty, you are the head of gold. Well, you can feel the king's, <laughs> you know, chest swelling in pride at this moment, can't you? And what he hears is that, but other kingdoms will come and take over from yours. Well, you know, he was wise enough to know that was the way of the world and how it went. But he goes on to say that at the end, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. A kingdom that's represented as a little stone that comes and taps the feet of this statue and it all crumbles. And he's seeing here a vision whoa, way ahead to the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. So he interprets the dream to the king and the king's really pleased and lavishes even more honour 
and rewards now. It says he put him into a very high position and gave him many gifts. And Daniel's also able to say, oh, by the way, I've got three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know, because if you could give them a key role as well. And the king does that as well. So just through going about this in a really wise and tactful way, but then going back to God for the meaning of the dream, he's able to start carving out a place for him here alongside the king as one of his interpreters of dreams. But Daniel's not missing things out. He's not compromising. No, it's a good point. I mean, he, he's very clear. You know, you are the head of gold, swelling chest <laughs> for the king, but there are other kingdoms that will come after you and there will be a kingdom that God will set up. So he's not sweet-coating it by any means. And as he goes on with some of his visions, it will become even clearer by chapter 4, for example. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a tree. And in this vision, as Daniel interprets it, the, the tree's chopped down and, and Daniel actually says to him, you, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong for your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. If you hear the king's chest swelling again, you know, it's quite wise, Daniel, in how he went about things. But then he goes on to say that this tree is going to be cut down to size and Actually, Your Majesty, there's there's going to be a period in which your mind will be taken from you. And it happened exactly like that. But as the king comes out of that, he, he's in a period when he's boasting, looking at his palace, saying, is this not mighty Babylon, which I've created by my power and for the glory of my majesty? And at that moment, he, he goes into a a state of madness and insanity. And it's only at the end of that time, as Daniel had foretold it, that he comes out of it. And it's interesting. He knows exactly what's happened. He's remembered what Daniel has said. And he ends up by honouring the God of Daniel and, and saying of his God, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, unlike his that he knew would be cut down and uh, he gives even more reward to Daniel and yet Daniel has told him hard home truths there so he really does speak truth and at times hard home truths but each time with incredible wisdom about how he brings that and I think there's a you know a bit of a message for us in our workplace situations we might at times have to bring hard truths to someone but ask God for the how in order to bring it in a really wise way. In chapter 6, we've moved on to a new king, actually a new empire. It's King Darius now, who was a, a Mede or a Persian. So that's interesting in itself. Darius has survived the transition from the Babylonians to the Persians. His period of officiating lasted a long time. And that in itself, I think, shows how well respected he had become but in chapter six we read that Daniel had so distinguished himself among all the leaders and officials in the land that all the others had become jealous and so they decide that they need to set him up uh, and so they all go to King Darius uh, and say oh you know your majesty um, we really feel that you should issue an edict that 
anyone who prays to any god or any other man for the next 30 days except to you or your wonderfulness should be thrown into the lion's den. And, and the king thinks that's a rather good suggestion, isn't it? But when Daniel learns about the decree, Daniel, remember, one of the leading officials, high profile, we'd say, this high profile figure responds to that by going to his upper room, opening the shutters wide and getting down on his knees to pray to his God as he is well known to have done. In other words, he is not going to hide the fact that he is a worshipper of the one true living God. Now, of course, all the other advisors think this is wonderful. They think, got him. That's exactly what we wanted. Go rushing off to the king and say, oh, your majesty, you know, you did pass this decree. Really sorry to have to tell you this, but, you know, Daniel's really been paying no attention your, to your decree and he's still praying three times a day to his God rather than you. And, and you've set in law that whoever does that is to be punished. And so the king reluctantly gives the order that Daniel has to be punished and he is thrown into, in chapter six, a den of lions. The interesting thing is that King is really hoping that his God would rescue Daniel. He actually says, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. So I'm sorry, I've no choice. I have to do this. But, oh, Daniel, I'm really hoping that this God you put your trust in can rescue you. And he's left there in this den of lions overnight. So this is where his authenticity, you know, authenticity is a big word these days, uh, particularly for the younger generation. They're looking for people who are authentic, whose lifestyles are authentic, who's, who've got value systems that are authentic. This guy was full of authenticity and it cost him because he's thrown now into a lion's den. And of course, we all know where that should end, mm. don't we? That's a dangerous place to be. Except it wasn't. <laughs> because God sends angels to shut the mouths of the lions overnight. Uh, that is nothing short of a miracle. I mean, you, you throw meat <laughs> into hungry lions and we know what they are going to do. And God protects him. No wound was found on him, chapter 6 says, because... He had trusted in God and the king recognizes this. So here is now a Persian king recognizing Daniel's God and ends up saying, I, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must now fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Now, he's, he's not saying he is the only God. He's a polytheist, remember. He believes in many gods. He's covering his bets. But I tell you what, he is making sure now that Daniel's God is right up there with all of them. And he ends up saying this lovely phrase, he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius 
the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So there were challenges. It did cost him living an authentic life, and yet God protected him every time. So he spoke the truth, and he stood up for what he believed, and he came through it. Absolutely. He came through it again and again, and that's why I love to recommend this book as as a book that's really relevant for people who are out there working in the workplace for how you can maintain your faith as a Christian and how that eventually can be worked out. But you have to win the right to do that. You see, way back in chapter one, what Daniel had done is he'd not just mouthed off about his faith. He'd let his faith be seen. He'd worked it out. It's even through a simple thing like, when he was asked to eat all the fine meats that were there in the palaces, which, of course, wouldn't have been kosher. They'd have been offered to their gods. And so he goes wisely and says to Ariok, who's in charge of all of these young men, could we just try a different way? Could, could we just try eating vegetables, put us on a trial, see how that does, see how we look after that time? So he's constantly looking for wise ways to express his faith. And yet he's never afraid to do it. So this is a great book. And certainly those first six chapters are a great book for looking for principles for how to express your faith in wise ways out there in the world and for it to come out good and for you to get opportunities to speak for God and bring God's wisdom into situations. Because as you said, King Darius was was watching Daniel's reaction. So there's a lesson there for the fact that People are watching how we behave. Yeah, I think that's really true, David. You know, in the office where we work, in the factory where we work, outside the school gate where we gather to pick up the kids, people watch. They want to know how are you going to respond, particularly how are you going to respond when things go wrong? And what they're looking for, again, is not Bible verses being thrown at them. They are looking for an authentic life that is winsome, and gets them to the point of thinking, I wonder if that would work for me too. So people are watching, and certainly people were watching Daniel. You said the second half of the book of Daniel, messages to Daniel himself. Yes, he's been faithful in giving messages to others, and now God starts to give messages to him. And they're messages really about what is to come. Now, some of the micro detail in these messages is not always easy. He uses a particular genre of writing called apocalyptic, which used imagery to convey its message. But it was imagery that was well understood at the time, even if it's not always to us. And so what he sees is what's going to happen in the future. So in chapter seven, he has a vision of four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and what he calls a terrifying and frightening beast. And we can see with the benefit of hindsight that these again refer to those four successive empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But he also sees in the middle of that vision, God seated upon his throne. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, he's seeing. But he sees one who he describes as ancient of days who takes his seat on his throne. This is God. 
And in this vision he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven approaching the Ancient of Days, who was given authority, glory, sovereign power in all peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike these human ones. So in the midst of these empires that will come and that have been Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, he sees this vision of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will come and will never end. He sees a similar thing in chapter 8 with the vision of a ram and goats representing now Persia and Greece. Uh, in chapter 9, he gets a vision being told that the destruction of Jerusalem will only last the 70 years. He gets that from studying the scriptures, by the way, and he discovers Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile would last 70 years, and that leads him into prayer. And Gabriel comes with an answer for him, a bit enigmatic, but basically saying 77s are decreed for your people, 77s, 490, 490 years. Probably a prophecy here of what will happen right up to the time of Judas Maccabeus, who would free Judah from foreign domination. Gabriel, you mentioned Gabriel explaining it to him. Is that because Daniel, who had interpreted other people's visions and dreams, needed his interpretation? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Gabriel, one of the greatest angels, he doesn't appear often in scripture, but appears at key times, like when he comes to Mary to tell her that she will conceive and carry Jesus he comes as the interpreter of God because the mysteries he's seeing are, are too big for him himself to understand. Interestingly, in chapter 10, the messenger that comes to him is resisted. Uh, we're told by the prince of the power of Persia, some spiritual power who just does not want Daniel to get these visions and these interpretations that come that take him really right up. Well, certainly to the time of Alexander the Great, pops into the story here, how his kingdom splits up into the Ptolemies and the Seleucids after that, how Judas Maccabeus will overthrow them. And by the end of his prophecy, we're even getting to the end of human history itself and, and the sort of the timeline between the immediate future of what will follow in the two or three decades after him, right through to the end of time, tends to blur a little bit, which is why interpreters sometimes just come up with slightly different interpretations for these chapters. So for the people of Daniel's day in exile, you know, strangers in a foreign land, how important was this book and what he was saying for them? I think it was incredibly important. Remember, he was among the first of the deportees. But during his time there in exile, the second batch of deportees would come, then the whole nation in 586 when it was deported. So things look like they're getting worse, not better. I mean, it's just one deportation after another, then all the people, then Jerusalem and its temple have been destroyed during this time. And yet, Daniel gets these messages that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but there is still one who is seated on his throne, the Ancient of Days. 
and there is a son of man who is coming to him, who is going to be given the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will not just be for himself. It will be back in chapter seven for the saints of the most high. And, and God is going to set up his kingdom here on earth. So this was hugely encouraging, hugely important for this exiled people who felt they were now nothing, who would be constantly told they were nothing. You have been conquered, defeated. You know, you are now our servants here in exile. And yet Daniel encourages them with these visions that this empire too will pass. And then the one that will follow it, Greece, and the one that will follow that, Rome, but there is a kingdom coming that will endure and last forever. And you know what? We are part of it. And one day we will be enjoying it. So hugely important for his fellow exiles at that time to know God is on his throne. His kingdom cannot be defeated. And one day that kingdom will fill the whole earth. And you and I, if we put our trust in Jesus, can have the joy of being part of that too. Would it be fair to say that we can sometimes feel like strangers in a foreign land? So does that make the book of Daniel as relevant to us? Yeah, I, I think so. I think particularly in the West, you know, we are living, aren't we, more and more in a sort of post-Christian era. And I think whether it's the whole of Europe, increasingly in the USA, you know, where we have been used to Christian culture and Christian norms and Christian laws and values, we see really on a daily basis them being undermined, disregarded, scoffed at, where we and our values are becoming increasingly the minority and to be despised. And so it's very easy for us to, to feel like aliens in a foreign land. But I think what this book does for us is model something of you know, not to sit on our rights and say, but we demand we should have, which sometimes Christians can fall into. It rather models for us, well, why don't you just model authenticity? Why don't you model for people what this God that they say they don't need anymore? Why don't you model for them what a difference it makes in your home, with your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your college, in your factory, with your kids? Why don't you model for them and show them that there is something different, something better, and that what they have rejected, they made a mistake in rejecting it, and live such an authentic life like Daniel did, that the point will come where, just like kings did to him, say, how is it that you've got that? And do you have a word for me? And it's at that point on the foundation of an authentic life that we get the opportunity to share the good news about Jesus and his kingdom that will never end and to invite them to become part of it as well. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.